in our book, The Whole Christ, at some point he goes into assurance. He looks at a number of different things, but he, uh, he starts with the kind of this, this first and this primary factor, this, this factor of justification, seeing where your justification comes from. That's not the only factor in, in um, he talks about how our um, assurance of, of salvation is based in primarily uh, the work of Christ, what Christ has done for us. And there's other things that should cause us to doubt our assurance, right? If we're, if we're using that grace as a license to sin and whatnot. But uh, the heart of it has to be justification and really understanding justification. We've seen that the gospel is good news, the, go- the good news that saves sinners. But the question becomes for us and for our people, how can I know that I'm saved from my sins? And for, the, for those of you who are going to go into pastoral ministry, the question is, how do I preach? How do I tell others about Jesus so that they too can be saved from their sins? What we find is that there's a certain order that God gives us in the Bible. So what I want to give to you right now is an evangelistic concept of sorts. Evangelism, evangelizing, is the sharing of the gospel. But it's much more than that. Whenever we endeavor to evangelize or win souls to Christ, there must be at least three points, three parts to our evangelistic message, okay? The first part, part number one, is the bad news, the bad news of sin and judgment. Notice I didn't say this is the the three parts of the gospel, the three parts of our evangelistic message, the first part being the bad news of sin and judgment. The second being the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners. And then the third part would be the call, calling people, commanding people to believe. As you can see in this, the gospel is only one part. It's one part in in a proper evangelism. It is the gospel that has the power, as we saw in Romans 1. The gospel is the power of God. But we never see the gospel standing only by itself. We never see the gospel standing alone. In the first half of our lectures, we saw the bad news was clearly articulated by Paul. And in the previous, in the, in the last several lectures, we have seen the gospel put on display at both a micro level, that's the espresso version, that Jesus saves sinners, and the macro level, that God is the gospel. Now it's time to consider the gospel call, or the invitation. In this lecture, we are primarily going to explore the biblical doctrine of justification. That's going to be the theme of this lecture. The gospel call calling of the gospel, that is not justification. But we cannot jump right into the topic of justification without first considering the gospel's invitation and man's response to it. So let's consider the gospel's call. Having gained the knowledge that our sin is a personal offense towards God and that it must be dealt with in judgment and then having learned that God sent his own son to die as a substitute in our place to atone for sin, Christ invites all, everyone, to believe in him. 
For God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him. In this call of the gospel, it has two essential parts. The first part is the actual invitation, inviting people. And the second part is the promise of salvation. Let's briefly explore both of these categories in scripture. Look at the invitation. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Christ declares, Come to me all, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In, the, in this famous text of John 3.16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And even in the Old Testament, the gospel was preached in the book of Isaiah, in chapters 53 and 54. And afterwards comes this great invitation. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who... And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. There's an invitation, right? The proof that this text from the Old Testament is applicable even in the New Testament can be just demonstrated in Revelation 22:17. Even the Holy Spirit is seen inviting. It says, the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So it's important to notice that this call, it goes out to everyone. It's a free invitation with no prerequisites. It does not require something of you. It says, just come. So this invitation is for everyone. But how do we come? How can we come? What does it mean to come to Jesus? We're going to answer that question in just a moment. promise. For all those who believe, there's a certain promise. The text of scripture says in John 3.16, whoever believes in him will not perish but has eternal life. Forgiveness of sins, that is the promise. The judgment you and I deserve, it is completely done away. So if you believe, it says you shall not perish. Acts 3.19 also declares this promise of sins forgiven. It says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. If you'll remember in lecture five, we saw that God has a book and he's tallying our sins. And with every moment that goes by, we're storing up wrath according to Matthew chapter two, verse five. But here's the promise. All that has been written in that book will be blotted out. The promise is saying that it will be as if you never sinned, not even once. But the promise goes on. It gets, it gets deeper. It gets better. In John 6, 37, Jesus declares, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The question becomes, what if I stumble after I come to you? The text says, never. What if I feel like I'm not strong enough to hold on to you? The text says, never. What if I'm not good at telling other people about Jesus? I'm I'm not a good evangelist. The text says, never. What about when I sin again? The text is very confident that you actually will sin again, and it says, I will never cast you out. The promise is reconciliation with God that cannot be reversed. So having heard the invitation of Christ and the promise for all those who believe, 
now comes the personal response, our response as sinners. As sinners, we either repent and we believe in Jesus, or we do not. When sinners willingly respond to the gospel invitation in faith, that is what we refer to as conversion. Perhaps you've heard in conversation, me with other people, instead of asking the question, when were you saved, I'll often ask people, when were you converted? Because conversion is when somebody places their faith in Christ. What is repentance and what is faith? Repentance, as you all know, essentially means to turn. It's a, a turning from sin to God and it starts in the mind and then ultimately we see the effects of this in our actions too. Man in his fallen state is a sinner who loves his sin. He's facing sin. He's embracing sin. In the world and in rebellion, he's turned his back on God. Repentance is a turning from sin to God. It has to do with a grief. It has to do with sorrow. Not simply a grief that somebody was caught and that they're now in trouble, but genuine repentance is a Godward grief. We find this in 2 Corinthians 7, 9. No longer do we want to do the things that are unpleasing to God. When somebody wants to repent, they want to stop doing the things that are displeasing to God. The act of turning to Christ, that is faith. Faith leaves behind a passionate love for sin, but it also leaves behind self-righteousness, right? It turns away from self-righteousness. So this this desire to, to place my confidence in what I've done and to make my standing before God be what I have done, repentance leaves behind self-righteousness. And it it trusts in Christ. To have faith is to say, there's nothing I can do to save myself. There's no action I can take, no attitude I can have, no tears I can cry, no fasting I can do, no good deeds I can commit that will save me and put me in right standing with God. So faith points away from self. Faith points away from self, and it points to Christ. If our primary problem is a lack of righteousness before God, faith points to Jesus and says, He is my righteousness. Faith is not a work, and that's very key for us to remember, especially when we're telling people about the gospel. And especially when we sit in our membership meetings and we're interviewing future candidates for membership, where are people placing their faith? Listen for, listen for things that might hint that they're placing their faith in themselves rather than in the finished work of Christ. Faith is not a work. Faith trusts in the work of Christ. Now here's the thing, faith and repentance are not a one-time thing. The call to repent and believe is not something just for unbelievers. You can't say, I did that 20 years ago, so I'm good. I was teaching at a a youth event recently, and I started talking to a young man who's in his early 20s, and we were having a group conversation, and the topic went to this, this this, the nature of sin and, and of repentance. 
and apparently this group had been sitting in on some lectures on the topic, and at the end of the teaching, uh, the, the class had called for a time of repentance. And this young man began to boast to me that he had already repented and that he would never do so again. This made me tremble for his erroneous thinking and for his spiritual state. Clearly, in his estimation, salvation is by works, works he had already done in the past and he had no intention to do again. In the Christian life, faith and repentance are lifelong practices. The apostle never stopped practicing faith and repentance. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, right now, I live in the flesh, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's Galatians 2.20. John, the beloved disciple of Christ, writing to those who had already believed, declares, if we confess without, if we confess our sins, these are already Christians, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 1 John 1, 9 through 10. If those who are already Christians have sinned, they're supposed to, are they supposed to continue in that sin? According to these texts, we would have to say no. Are they to deny its existence? Are they to say, no, I have stopped sinning once and for all? No, this text would teach them to confess their sins. And it would also teach them to turn from their sins actively today, to repent of their sins today. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. We have to say the gospel is for believers too, right? We'll be looking at that in a little bit tomorrow. <clears throat> so now, now we're ready to look at the doctrine of justification. We've, we've seen the call. We've heard the gospel. We've seen the call. And now let's look precisely, what happens? How does a man get justified in the eyes of God? Faith and responsibility, we can say, are the responsibility of man. Faith and repentance are the responsibility of man. Justification, however, is the work of God. It is only, completely, entirely, always, and wholly, 100% the work of God. So what is justification? We've already seen it. We're going to drop down into it even more. It is the legal declaration that we are righteous in the eyes of God. We've seen it's a forensic term concerning our status before him. What justification does not mean, here's what it does not mean. It does not mean that we have actually become righteous in and of ourselves. God is not making us inwardly righteous in justification. This is so important for you to hear. Nor is he infusing us with his righteousness as with an injection. And this is often what the Catholic Church has taught. That God is taking a, a giant Murphy and he's injecting us with his righteousness. That's not what we're talking about here. God is not injecting us. He's not infusing us with his righteousness. Instead, he's imputing to us his righteousness. It is though God is transferring the righteousness of God from Jesus' spiritual bank account, you might say, to our spiritual bank account. The righteousness of God is credited 
to us, and therefore God makes a legal declaration that we are justified or right in his sight. Now in this concept of imputation, we find two transactions that are being made. Two transactions. I work with a brother who I, it's not Ebenezer, who every month I have to make a transaction with him. I need to pay him. And I have to go to Burhan account, and I have to put the money in my own bank account, and then I have to transfer that, and this is a new policy in the government, I guess, is why I have to do this. And then I have to, to, to transfer it to this brother's bank account. I have to put it in my own bank account, and then I have to transfer it to his bank account. There's two transactions. And the, in, in the imputation of righteousness, we find two transactions taking place. This may be demonstrated from 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21, which we've already looked at, which says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What this is saying in context is God the Father made God the Son to be our sin, though he was sinlessness, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Two transactions. Our sin is taken, God's righteousness is given. This is what we would refer to in theology as double imputation. Double in imputation. Let's look at the first one. We're forgiven, the first transaction. Firstly, our sin is being accredited to Christ. All our sin, past, present, and future, is being credited to Christ's bank account, you could say. So I want you to visualize your sin being taken off of your shoulders and placed on Jesus, and then Jesus dying for it. Forgiveness is the outcome of this first transaction. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. Then we are justified. When we are justified, our relationship with God is reconciled and we have peace with him. We now have peace with God. We're forgiven. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5.1. That means there no longer remains a separation between us and God. In effect, God... When he forgives us, it is like he is placing us back in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned. That's, that's in effect what's happening. We're being declared sinless. Your sin is being taken away from you, and God is forgiving you. He's not only forgiving you for your sins that you have committed up until the point of conversion, he's forgiving you for all of your sins that you have not even yet committed. The sins you will commit in the future are forgiven too. All past, present, and future sins are forgiven at justification. But God is not only forgiving you, that's only the first transaction. Here's the second transaction. The second transaction is declared righteousness. The second transaction of imputation is that God accredits to the believer the righteousness of his own son, Jesus. It is as though he wraps us in the robes of righteousness. Isaiah 61.10, he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. What kind of righteousness? This is divine righteousness. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God. It's God's righteousness. 
And how do we get this? Again, it is only through faith. It's not, re, it's not acquired by righteous living. It's not acquired by inward holiness. It does not come by keeping God's law. The text says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Philippians 3.9. Yes, Yes, in effect, uh, but uh, in a sense, yes. But here's what I want to stress at this moment. We, we tend to blur the lines of justification and sanctification. We tend to not have a clear order of salvation, uh, uh, what the old, old school cast would call ordo salutis. And what I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to put into your brain right now is a biblical order, ordo salutis, an order of salvation. I want, you to, I want you to try not to rush to sanctification. So let's tarry, let's spend time on justification. The same way I left you yesterday and let the paint dry on the wrath of God, I want to leave you today with justification as defined biblically. And I want you to let the paint dry. Before, before we begin to think about, okay, all the, all the things that I need to do in, in justification, <coughs> sorry, in sanctification, let's let the paint of free grace, the free grace of justification settle. Tomorrow we're going to go into sanctification. We're going to look at actually how do I live? What do I do? How does this gospel apply to all of my life? Um, but today I, I want to end with justification, if that's all right. Yes, sir. I think it's the person. The, a good question, but it also, we, we could ask the same question of all the Old Testament saints, right? That, that actually comes up in another class. That, that's more Old Testament stuff, so you'll, you'll see that in, in your Old Testament studies. I'm going to go into politics after this class. So good at, so good at deflecting questions. Any other questions that need to be deflected today? <laughs> Bless the country. <laughs> Any more questions? Okay. <clears throat> Hang with me. Bear with me just a little bit longer. 
So uh, Philippians 3.9, that's where we ended. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So it's not even acquired via repentance. Repentance, we can say, is the fruit of faith. It follows faith. We receive the righteousness of God by faith alone. That is by trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. When we believe in Jesus, we are accounted as righteous. We find this in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. It says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a crucially important aspect for understanding justification, brothers. When God declares a person justified, he's declaring that person to be just as righteous as himself. Here's why this is so significant. Before the fall, Adam was sinless, but he was not a partaker of divine righteousness. This gets into your question, Emmanuel, again, from yesterday. Before the fall, Adam was sinless, but he was not a partaker of divine righteousness. That is to say, he did not possess the righteousness of God. But now... Christ has given us his son's righteousness, his own righteousness. Christ Christ doesn't have a son. I'm tired. Christ has given us his own righteousness. As a result, status-wise, that is in the eyes of God, we are put back, we are, we are not put back into the Garden of Eden, so to speak, but rather we're lifted up into heaven. We are united with Christ so that even while our bodies remain on earth, our identities have been bound to Christ who is in heaven. Even if and when we make mistakes and sin again, we cannot fall in the same manner as Adam. Status-wise, we cannot fall because Christ cannot fall. This has to do with union with Christ. In a word, he has become our identity. He has become our life. Our status cannot be changed. We are righteous because he has given us his righteousness, which cannot be altered. Our eternity, our eternal security is sure. We're justified. The question is, when does this happen? When does this happen? When does an individual become justified? The Bible is very clear that justification follows faith. When an individual trusts in Christ Jesus for salvation from sin, that is when he is justified. Galatians 2.16 We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. That's Galatians 2.16 It's free and it's simple. The moment an individual trusts in Jesus, God declares him or her to be righteous or justified. It is not a process, therefore. We can say that justification is not a process. It is not progressive. Justification is a one-time event, unlike sanctification, in which one can grow in personal faith and in practical holiness. And we're going to see that in our lectures starting tomorrow morning. One cannot grow or diminish in their state of justification. 
In other words, one cannot become more or less justified. One cannot gain justification and then lose it only to get it back again. Justification is a once and for all time legal declaration made by God. What we are not saying in this statement is that those who fall away from the faith and apostatize are in good standing with God. I am not making that statement right now. The Bible makes it clear. We see this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. <clears throat> John says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. That means they, were, they, they never truly had saving faith. We see the same idea also in the parables of the different soils in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and in Luke 8. Different people receive the word with, in varying measures. But, this, but with those who have genuine faith, the moment they believe, we have to say they are justified. They are declared right in the eyes of God. God looks at the believer through his son and declares him or her to be sinless. So here again, we must stress that faith is not a work, according to Romans 4.3. In fact, faith is held in contrast to works-based justification in the Bible. Galatians 2.16 declares, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith, in Jesus Christ. And so faith is compared in contrast with works. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one shall be justified. Galatians 2.16, those two things are contrasted, works and faith. We're saved by free grace, brothers. 100% totally and completely. It is free from beginning to end. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24 For this reason, we do not say we've been saved by faith. We're not saved by faith. Faith is not the Savior. To say we are saved by faith that would give us reason to boast before God and man. One who has faith would be able to look at one who does not have faith and say, I have done something that you have not. I have deserved God's grace with my faith. That would give one a reason to boast. But the gospel declares that we are saved by Jesus, that we're saved by grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, and that's worth re reading again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Even your faith is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so you see, we're saved by Jesus. So then the question becomes, what is faith? Faith, we must say then, is an instrument by which we take hold of Jesus. Faith always points away from self and to Christ as our righteousness. Faith points away from self and to Christ as our righteousness. And we find that even faith 
Even faith is a gift from God. We find this in John chapter 6, 65 and Philippians 1, 29. So when an individual finds that they have an ability to trust in Christ, it must be recognized as a grace, a grace given from God. In the same way that Jesus healed the blind by giving them sight, not all have faith. And when God intends to save an individual, he gives faith to those who previously were without faith. Salvation is entirely a gift of God. When a person has faith in Christ, that is when he is justified. God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3.26, do you see that? Who's the one justifying? God is justifying the one who has faith. God is doing the justification still. Faith isn't doing the justification. God is doing the justification. We were saved by faith, and faith was a work. Then we would be justified. Faith would be doing the work of justification. But we find in Romans chapter 3 that it is God who's the justifier. Perhaps the greatest example of saving faith given to us in the Bible is that of Abraham. We're always commanded to follow in his example. Don't take that out of line and go kill your son. That part is not prescriptive. Using Abraham as our example and how we too should think of faith and justification, Paul writes Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Please follow along with me if you would open your Bible. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. What we see in this text is that faith is again contrasted, compared and contrasted with works, and that it is God who is doing all of the start saving work. Starting in verse 1, with regards to salvation, Paul is asking what Abraham accomplished according to the flesh. What did he accomplish? What did he do? Otherwise put, what did Abraham do to deserve or to merit God's grace? To make it even more plain, what did Abraham do to deserve heaven? If there is something he did, well then, according to this reason, this, this reasoning, this line of logic, he would have a reason to boast. If faith is a work and not a gift of grace, well, he has the right to boast even of his faith, right? But in the third verse, it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. His faith is being contrasted to works. Then Paul drives home the point by saying in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Do you see what he's saying? This is saying that if salvation is by works, then God owes us his grace. He owes us salvation. If God's way of salvation is by works, then that means we deserve heaven when we do good works. 
Yes, sir. Great question. Let's do, let's do some spiritual logic together. Let's turn this into a logical equation. So, we believe that the word of God is inerrant, right? It does not have error. We believe it's authoritative. So Paul is talking about uh, faith apart from works. And James is talking about faith with works. How can we reconcile this? Because it almost seems like an error, doesn't it? If we're not careful, then these, these two brothers, who both were following Jesus, were preaching two different things. And our dear brother Martin Luther read this and thought James just happened to not be in the biblical canon because how could he disagree with Brother Paul? So, is James disagreeing with Brother Paul? Yeah. So is that genuine? So he's talking about he's talking about genuine versus ingenuine faith, right? Is that what's the test of genuine faith? He's saying the test of genuine faith is works. Yeah. So so if you say you have faith but you don't have works, James is saying, "Well, you're a liar, my friend." Yeah. I think it's a great question. So this is where we, so what we're called to be is nothing short of physicians of the soul, doctors of the soul. If you go into pastoral ministry, you're called to be nothing short of a doctor of the soul. And there's got to be time, every day, every week, you're going to get up. If you're a preacher, you're going to get up, you're going to have 45 minutes to one hour to preach. Now we've, we've got 66 books in the Bible. There's a lot of nuance, Right? There's a lot of different veins of thinking. And you don't have the ability to, to trace down every single vein when you preach. You really get to stick with one vein of thinking in a sermon, for the most part, right? You can't preach the full counsel of God in one sermon. It's virtually impossible, right? Would you agree with me on that? 
So we, we, we have to take, when we're expositional preachers, our goal is to get into the vein of thinking of our preacher for his original context. And for Paul, in his original context of Romans, he's not in the same vein of thinking as James, right? James is trying to challenge Christians who, who uh, so James has been referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. Proverbs is not made up of promises. It's made up of short, pithy statements. Those are general truths. So if somebody comes to you and says, raise up a child in the way of the Lord, and they say, there's a promise here for me, but my child has gone away, I can't trust the Bible because Proverbs has promised me something. The proper response is, with gentleness, actually, no. That's not a promise. That's a general truth, right? Like, if you work hard, you'll make money. And you won't go homeless. General truth. I'm sure there's somebody who's worked hard who's ended up homeless, right? It's a general truth. James is supposed to, is made up of general truths. It's, it's Proverbs. It's supposed to be heart-exposing. It's not so much theology that he's teaching. He's teaching general overarching truths for the New Testament. That, that goes into interpretation, which is outside of my, my, my field. That's your hermeneutics professor. So once again, I will deflect this question. <laughs> but you can vote for me. <laughs> but I, I, I do think we have to be able to we have to be able to say the things Paul said to our people without without uh, justifying them. Don't let that confuse you. We're talking about justification, justification. But we don't have to justify every single statement right? We don't have to, I I think this would be the wrong place. When Paul's teaching about justification, this would be the wrong place to put everything on pause and say, now, your faith is not real if it's not backed up by works, because Paul's not doing that. He never says that. That's not where he goes in this. Paul wants you to stand with nothing, naked before God, and say, you are all my righteousness, and that's faith. That's 100% faith, right? That's faith and nothing but faith. And that's where Paul wants you to be. And he doesn't want anything in you to say, yeah, but is my faith real? And so we have to allow ourselves to get into Paul's vein of thinking, I think. And let that paint dry before we big, pick up the question, yeah, but is, is that real faith, right? Because that's not where Paul is going. There's a time for it. I don't know, I don't know that it's here. And Romans, that's not a rebuke by any means. General truth. So every month I work, and at the end of the month I receive my salary. In the same way, if we're saved by works, then heaven is simply us getting what we deserve for a life of good works. That's the argument of Paul here when he brings up Abraham. But Paul is saying this is not how salvation functions whatsoever. We're not saved by our good works, but by the grace of God. He goes on in verse 5 to show just how radically free this grace actually is. Verse 5 reads, To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now holding God's grace in contrast again, to works-based righteousness, he says that in God's system of salvation, we come to God having no good works. 
In God's eyes, we have not worked at all. In fact, we come to him as ungodly. We come to him as unrighteous. It is God who justifies us when we are still, while we're still actually ungodly. It is him who is making us righteous while we're still ungodly. We come to God with all our stains, in other words. We come to God with all our problems, with our rebellion. We come dirty. We come vile and filthy. And while still in this state, God makes the legal declaration that we are right in his sight. That's justification. And this is so incredibly important for Paul's argument. I want you to remember back in Romans 1.18 when Paul states the reason for God's anger towards us. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Sin is summed up by ungodliness and righteous, unrighteousness. Here in verse 6, God is fixing both of those problems. He is justifying the ungodly and counting us righteous. That's incredible. Paul is an incredible writer. Paul is an incredible thinker. He was illuminated by the Holy Spirit. This is so powerful for us, for us in our daily lives, and it, it, it just seeps into, it goes to every area of our life. Firstly, it means for us that we get to come. We can come to God. We can encourage our people to come to God as they are. We come in all of our sin. The prostitute comes in her sin. The drunkard comes with the drink on his breath. We come to God as we are. We come in all of our filth, in all of our sin. We don't clean ourselves up in order to be justified. We come as ungodly sinners, and God justifies us. We don't try to become more righteous. God declares us to be righteous when we trust in his son. Secondly, it means that when we evangelize, we recognize our ministry is not to clean up the lives of those with whom we are sharing the gospel. Our people that we evangelize to are not our projects. We don't go trying to clean them up and we don't get discouraged when they're not clean. Instead, we invite the worst of sinners. We go to the worst places. We go to the worst of sinners and we invite them to come to Jesus just as they are. To trust in him for their salvation too because it is free. Thirdly, this has huge implications on how we think about our salvation when we sin and when we fall again. After becoming a Christian, when we find that we have sinned, am I to suddenly fear that I am no longer saved at all? Have I now lost my salvation? Has God now stopped accepting me? Am I to think that now that I have made a mistake, I am suddenly out of right standing with him? If we do that, brothers, such thinking reveals that we are not thinking about faith properly in the first place. How were you justified to begin with? What did you do initially to get into right standing with God? What made you to be accepted or acceptable in his sight? 
You came ungodly. You came unrighteous. And he justified you. He declared you to be righteous when you were not. Justification is a one-time thing. You cannot become more. You cannot become less justified. You cannot lose your justification. If when you sin, you think you have done something, that you have to do something to get back into right standing with God, it simply reveals that you don't really understand justification by faith. You do not understand grace. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but I'm saying you don't fully understand grace. You don't really deeply understand the gospel. It's not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you. He justifies the ungodly. Friends, there's a lot of people who don't have assurance in our churches because they're missing this. I'm not saying they're not Christians. I believe them to be Christians. They've trusted in Christ. They've been redeemed. But they're failing to grasp the doctrine of justification. And so when they sin, they, they, they get so discouraged. They get lost. I'd like to give you a, an illustration. When I was a child... We lived next to a forest, and I used to go outside and play until I was covered in dirt and mud and filth. And then upon returning home, my mother would see me returning from far away, and she would come out yelling, you're not allowed to come inside of the house. And then she would make me take off all of my clothes until I was stripped naked, and she would wash me with a hose outside. My neighbors can see me. I am buck naked for everyone to see. It's a full moon outside. (laughs) She'd spray me down with a hose, and I was so embarrassed because I felt like all of my neighbors were watching. See it? (laughs) Only then, once I was clean, would she allow me to come inside of the house. Listen, justification is nothing like that. Imagine, rather, a child coming home from playing outside in the mud. He's dirty and he's filthy. He comes home and his mother sees him in his dirt and filth, and despite his uncleanliness, she welcomes him inside and says, You are clean, pure, spotless. The boy goes inside and he looks in the mirror and he sees that he's still so dirty that he cannot even recognize his own face, and suddenly he thinks, I made a mistake. I'm so dirty, I shouldn't have come inside. I shouldn't be here. I don't belong here. I don't deserve to be in this house. He goes back to his mother, but his mother looks at him and smiles, saying, no, my son, you are clean. Friends, this illustration is not perfect. It fails to take into account judgment, which we've already looked at, and substitutionary atonement, and even glorification but I think it gives a good idea of what is going on specifically with regards to justification, and it captures the internal feelings and the emotions of a believer. Justification does not make us clean on the inside. Justification does not mean we become sinless in our own being. It is God making an illegal declaration that we are sinless because Jesus has already paid the consequences and taken judgment for our sin. As a result, God makes the kingly pronouncement that we are righteous, allowed into his courtroom, even though we are not in and of ourselves. So when we go, when we look in the spiritual mirror, which we should, 
We see ourselves in light of Romans 1.18 through 3.20 again. We find that we are still guilty of committing those sins, or you could say dirty. We shouldn't be surprised. We came home dirty, and he pronounced us to be clean. We came ungodly, and he justified. We came and trusted in Jesus, and he counted it to us as righteousness. We need to note the extreme contrast between our identity as it was before and as it is after justification. Before justification, we were accursed. That means cursed children. Even the elect, we were cursed children, accursed children, 1 Peter 2.14. We were children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. But now we are the children of God, 1 John 3.1. Before justification, we were declared worthless, Romans 3.12. In justification, we are declared precious, 1 Peter 2.4. Prior to justification, we were aliens and strangers, Ephesians 2.12. But now we're declared a chosen race, 1 Peter 2.9. We were once unclean and full of sin, but now we are holy, again, 1 Peter 2.9. This is the identity of the Christian. But I don't feel holy, you still interject. And so will our people. Remember, justification is God's legal declaration over you. You and yourself? No. Me and myself? No. We're certainly not holy. But God has declared us to be what we are not in and of ourselves. In his eyes, we are. And this is an objective fact. If you say, I cannot believe it, because I don't feel it, such thinking exposes a self-righteousness and an absence of faith. You're still looking at your own self and your own performance for approval with God. Put simply, we're not understanding grace. We're wanting to pay for it. We're wanting to pay for something that's free and will always be free. You cannot pay for it. And when you try to pay for it, you continue to offend God by rejecting the free grace of God. You're stepping over his son, Jesus, as we said yesterday. You're trying to present God with some sort of work or some sort of gift that you have done so as to win his approval. But as, there's people who go to our churches like that. And they're in danger because they're not Christians. For our people... We want to win them. We want to win them to Christ. We want our people to have a full assurance. We want them to be positive that they're saved. The question is, what are they thinking needs to happen in order for them to be real Christians? Some of our people think that they need to read their Bible more. Some of our people think they need to repent more. Some of our people think they need to get involved in church leadership. Unless I'm a leader in the church, probably not really a Christian. Some people think they need to pray harder, fast more. Maybe I need to go to theology school. Maybe I need to cry enough over my sin or show God, really, I'm serious about holiness, God. I feel really bad about my sins. 
Some of our people think they need to go a whole week without sinning just to be able to come to church. Those all fall under the category of good works. What our people need to do is stop working. They need to stop working. They need to cease trying to save themselves and instead they need to trust in Jesus' work for them on their behalf. There's nothing to pay because Jesus has paid it all. There's nothing to do because Jesus has done it all. There's nothing they need to be that Christ has not already been for them. So again, let's imagine that cyclops. Let's imagine faith as a laser beam. We simply need to get our people to shine the laser beam on Jesus, for them to cast the beam of faith onto Jesus happens like that. It happens like that. This is the free grace of God in the gospel. It is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Hallelujah.